If you've got a Bible with you, we're continuing this morning in our journey through the book of James, and we're up to chapter 4, and I'm going to read from verse 11 down through to verse 16. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, sorry, I've lost my place. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, but the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. And it is, you boast in arrogant schemes, all such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do, and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Difficult words. But let's pray. Let's pray that God will give us wisdom as we unpack these words together. Lord, we thank you for the wisdom that is in the book of James, and we thank you that it's your wisdom. And as James has already said in his, in his letter, if we come to you and pray for wisdom, you will grant it to us. So Lord, we pray that prayer. Help us to apply these words to our hearts and lives that we may further glorify your name. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Don't know about you, but I like it when I find out I'm right about something. Anyone in the same position? On the occasion. <laughs> it seems to be an inbuilt human instinct, doesn't it? Whether it's finding the last clue on a crossword, whether it's in a discussion with somebody and you can prove your point and prove that you're right, whether it's playing the right notes in the right order on a musical instrument, we like it when we're right. Now, there is nothing wrong with being right. In fact, it's quite important in most of life. If I go to see the doctor, I want to know they're going to make a right diagnosis. If I take my car into the mechanic, I want to know they're right when they know where to put the oil and where to put the windscreen washer. But sometimes the need to be right can get in the way of humility. It can get in the way of all that God would want to do. And we can become incredibly self-reliant. And we can think that I've got everything under control. I know everything. And actually, we can stop God from breaking in to our experience. Now, we've been working our way through the book of James for a number of weeks now. And if you were here two weeks ago, Mike was taking us through the first part of chapter 4. And um, the bit just before where I read is a call to repentance. If you've got a Bible open, you might just want to cast your eyes on verse 7 down to verse 10. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. And it goes on in that kind of vein. And it's a real call to get back to relationship with God, to a radically changed life. And then you might be forgiven as we read the book of James for thinking, well, James has then written written that. He's gone off and had a coffee. He's forgotten what he's talking about and comes back and talks about slandering one another. And it seems to be a totally different subject matter. I want to suggest something else, actually. I want to suggest what James is doing is he's talking about repentance. He's spoken about how we need to get back to God and then be lifted back up. And what he believes is now happening is that his reader will have done that. That the reader will have heard the words of the Lord 
Come back to him. Come like the prodigal, back to the father, and will have been restored. And so we're onwards and upwards in terms of a journey about making sure that our lives reflect the purposes of God. So the first subject matter that James brings to mind is slandering. Do not slander one another. James is very keen throughout the whole of his letter that what we say matters. That actually what comes out of our mouth is no mere accident. But actually it reveals what is going on deep within the human heart. You know, if we struggle to use our words to praise God, what does that actually say about what is going on in our hearts? If we use our words to bring other people down, what does that say about what's going on in our hearts? If you think about a spring of water, if ever you've seen a spring where water bubbles out of the ground and turns into a river, that's not the first place that water has appeared. It's actually all those underground streams that burst forth, and there you get the spring. And that's what words are. They're from the spring of the heart. They come out, and they can either be used to build people up or to tear people down. Just say for a moment you're, you're, you're using words and your language becomes, say, rather industrial in tone, or it becomes rather coarse, or it becomes very angry. What does that say about what's going on in the human heart? It actually reveals what's going on in our heart. If we are kind and generous and loving, what does that say about what's going on in our heart? It reveals something quite significant. So the word that James uses here, this word slander, is a word about tearing a building down. That's the root of the word. Pulling something down. And it's about pulling a person down. So if we slander somebody, and we see slander all over the media, don't we? We see it in celebrities. We see it with politicians. We literally see it all over the place. People trying to bring other people down. But if we slander somebody, it's as if we take something that may have an element of truth in it, or it may not, and we then spread it round to other people with the sole intent of seeing that person brought low. Of seeing that person's credibility, their respectability, whatever it is, Um, slandered and brought low. It's like highly charged gossip. This picture that I've put on the screen is called the gossip. Um, Slander is worse than gossip. It's like gossip but hypercharged. People talking about one another with that real desire to bring one another down. So verse 11, James says, anyone who speaks, and some translations include the word evil there, against his brother or sister judges them and speaks against the law and judges it. So what on earth does that mean? What is James talking about? Well, this, this whole trajectory of do not slander is something that's the theme right the way through the Old Testament. And it comes right the way through the teaching of Jesus and right the way into the epistles. So we can trace it back right the way through to the law of Moses. Leviticus 19, verse 16. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. Why? Well, slander just brings destruction. It doesn't build anybody up. It doesn't do anybody any good. Proverbs 18, verse 8, the words of a gossip are like choice morsels. We love to eat them, but actually they just destroy. Remember, slander is like gossip in hyperspeed. The famous words of Jesus in Matthew 7, do not judge, or you will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured out to you. So what James is doing is picking up on this Old Testament theme of do not slandering, And sort of pulling back the curtain a little bit to help us understand why it is such a bad thing. And what it reveals about our own desire to be right, about our own human heart. And then he sort of says, well actually what can we do about it? How can we put this right? You know, we slander when something is going wrong in us. 
It's not about the other person. It's actually what's going wrong in our heart. It's when our heart is not at one with ourselves and with God. Sometimes it happens because of insecurity. Sometimes it happens because we're threatened by somebody else and we think, well, if I can just bring them down a peg or two, actually, I'll look better. Sometimes we don't even know we're doing it, but we can all risk falling into the trap of being slanderers. And it's as if we look, out, look at a person and we start saying things about a person using our interpretation of God's law. We judge that person, but we're not prepared to have the Lord judge us at the same time. And so we sit over God's law and we do what God has told us not to do. So when does it happen? Well, it can happen any time, can't it? I quite like this quote. I'll just read this to you. Slander occurs when someone shares something about someone else that is not factual or perhaps partially true, but results in damaging the individual's reputation. The subtlety of slander can occur over a casual coffee, conversation amongst friends, or it can happen as a means of asking for prayer for someone. The end result of slander is the devaluation of a person in the eyes of others. Sometimes this happens in the locker room of a football team among athletes. It can happen in the school playground and many other places. And sadly, it happens in circles in local churches. Slander happens when actually we don't want anything good for somebody, but we just want to see them brought low. So what's James's answer? How do we prevent ourselves from falling into this particular trap? Well, in verse 12, he says, There is only one lawgiver and judge. And so James's solution is, rather than look at the other person, rather than think ill of other people, look to God and see that God is the one. He is the only one who can judge our hearts. So how can we do this practically? Well, I want to say two things this morning. One is very practical, and one is probably the answer you will expect. So we'll go with the practical one first of all. Apparently Socrates said this, you know, the Greek philosopher, so I don't know how old this is, I don't know whether it was from him, but it'll do. Before you speak, let your words pass through three gates. Is it true? Is it necessary? And is it kind? And you can have those in any order you want, really. But those three things. Is it true? Is it necessary? Is it kind? The truth. You know, sometimes if we're speaking something that is just a fact, you can say it to somebody's face, and it's just true, and it doesn't matter. You know, if you say to me this morning, Jonathan, you're wearing a blue shirt, that is true. If you say, Jonathan, you always wear a blue shirt, that is probably fairly true as well. (laughs) But that is not slander, it's not even gossip, it's just sharing fact. If you said it to somebody else and then came and said it to my face, I would not be in the slightest bit bothered, because I like wearing blue shirts. I have a very monotonous colour choice. That is just a reality. Take it a stage further. If you say to somebody else, Jonathan was wearing a blue shirt this morning and it really didn't match what's left of his hair. (laughs) That starts to become a little bit gossipy, doesn't it? There's truth with interpretation. Then if you go a stage further and you start saying, actually, Jonathan was wearing a blue shirt this morning, but did you see how creased it was? (laughs) What a lazy man. I hear he's totally idle. He never does anything. He just sits around and he never irons. And you start going on like that. You've gone from something that is truth to something that may be a bit gossipy to actually devaluing a character of a person. All on that same trajectory. And it is so easy to do it. And we can easily fall into the trap. So the first thing, is it true? Is what we're saying true? Are we over-interpreting, over-analyzing, over-thinking and then turning it into gossip? Is it necessary? You know, sometimes in life, 
we do have to have difficult conversations. Sometimes in life we have to address things with one another that can be deeply painful, but it's the right thing to do. Sometimes that is really necessary. And as Christians, we never want to get to the point where all we do is say nice, meaningless platitudes to one another and never deal with the elephant in the room type thing. And that we just talk all these nice, fluffy words. That is not what Jesus ever tells us to do. But sometimes when we're talking, are the things that we say actually necessary? Particularly when we're talking about another person. Should we be talking about that person? Should we be saying anything at all? I um, developed a bit of a rule when I um, first started preaching, and I learnt my lesson quite early on, and it was this. If in doubt, leave it out. If I think that something I'm going to say is going to bring hurt rather than healing, if I think that I'm not quite sure whether it's biblical, don't say it. Now, sometimes you say things anyway, because that's just the way we are as human beings, but don't deliberately do it. Don't set yourself up to say something that you know may cause somebody pain. If we did that in our own lives, if we sort of thought, actually, do I need to actually say this? Is this a relevant thing to talk about? How much pain could we avoid with one another? And the third thing, is it kind? Does it build somebody up? Is what I'm talking about going to see that person lifted up to wholeness in God? Or is it actually going to tear them down? I don't know about you, I find that quite helpful. It's just a bit of a checklist. It's a very practical thing to do. Um, If you've got a good memory, you may remember, I don't know how many months ago it is now, probably 18 months or so, we did a sermon series on spiritual disciplines about practical tools for growing in Christ. This is one of those kind of things. It doesn't solve the heart, but what it does do is it helps us to grow and start to think and start to work out what it means to be Jesus-centered in our language. We know God is always after deeper transformation than that. That's good, and I commend that to you, but he's after something more. And this is the obvious answer. What does God want? He wants a transformed heart. He wants to change us deep within. I think most of you will know now, and I promise the next six months of sermons will not be full of hospital illustrations. But five weeks ago, I had my appendix removed rather urgently. And before I had my operation, I didn't eat anything for three days. Now, the last 12 hours of that was because there was a big sign above my bed saying nil by mouth. Um, But before then, what happened was something was going deeply wrong inside of my body, deeply, deeply wrong. And it robbed me of my appetite. I just couldn't eat. I couldn't face eating anything at all. Now, one of my lasting memories of the whole event was coming around from surgery um, on the Saturday and being offered a meal on Saturday evening. Now, remember, I'm in Warrington General Hospital I am not expecting a Michelin-starred meal to arrive. Um, But this tray of food was plonked in front of me, and I opened it up, and one of the things on there was rhubarb crumble. (laughs) Now, that is not normally on the top of my agenda for food to eat. You know, it's all right, but it wouldn't be something I would pick off a menu. But I tasted it, and honestly, it was like the curtain had been drawn back, like I'd walked into Eden Restored and tasted of the fruits of paradise. (laughs) It was that good. Why was it that good? Well, for start off, it was the first food I'd tasted for three days. But the thing that was going wrong had been taken away. The thing that was robbing me of joy and appetite had gone. And all of a sudden, I could start to experience rhubarb crumble in a way that I never have done before. (laughs) What does the Bible say about a new heart? Well, last week was Pentecost. The Spirit has been poured out. And look what Ezekiel promises. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That is promise. 
You know, that is not something God says, I might give you a new heart, or you can earn yourself a new heart. It's nothing like that at all. It's if we are willing to be transformed by the Spirit, the Spirit does a work in us, and bit by bit, little by little, it won't be complete in this life, but it will be a journey of transformation. And the thing that God wants for us is to be up for that journey. It's to be up for that journey where actually our language, the things that we say, we're longing to be changed. That we don't speak in the ways that we used to. That we start to be kinder. We start to be different in the way that we talk. But that comes with a a sort of deep desire for God. A deep desire for the things of the Spirit. Psalm 51, verse 10, the psalmist prays, Create in me a clean heart. Oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Perhaps when it comes to our language and the way that we speak about one another, perhaps we just need to make that our prayer this morning. Let me read it. You may just want to to pray it with me right now. Let's just read these words. Create in me a clean heart, oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. James then moves us on a bit. And we get to a totally different topic, but it's actually linked because it's all again to do with thinking that we're in control and being right about boasting about tomorrow. One of Paul's great themes in his letters is about boasting in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, I won't boast in anything, but I will boast in the Lord. I will boast in all that he has done. But actually what James does here is he has another type of boasting in mind. And he's talking about people who boast about what they think their future will hold. And he he tells a little story, just a sentence, about a travelling merchant. Now, in the Roman world, you could travel around very easily, actually more easily than you can today, probably, apart from transport was a lot slower. You could go all the way from the borders of Iraq, right the way up to Hadrian's Wall, without passing out of Roman land. And so if you were a merchant, you could travel these huge distances, selling things, and people got very wealthy, and it really had an impact on the life of the early church, because it was these wealthy merchants that would often house those first church gatherings in their large homes. But James here, he's not talking about this is bad, he's not saying you shouldn't go making money, he's not saying you shouldn't go out to work or try and earn a good living, but what he's saying is the error of thinking that we are in control. The error of thinking that actually I've got my life sorted and I don't need God. I don't need God to be in control because it's all sorted. Verse 14, why, James says, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. How true is that, isn't it? How many times in our own lives, if I were to go around the room and say, how many times has your life been disrupted by something that happened that you didn't want to happen and it totally threw your plans? It might be that you're due to go on holiday and you suddenly come down with illness. It might be you're on a journey somewhere and you drive over a nail and you get a flat tyre. It can be anything from the very small mundane to the great big things that cause absolute tragedy in our lives. This morning, we've been spending time thinking about a tragedy in Ukraine. And it's it's an awful, awful tragedy. But it's not one that if you went back five years, people would see coming. People were getting on with lives, people with plans. And what James's point here is is don't think that you're in control. Don't think that you've got everything sorted. He says you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You know, living in this area, quite often we we can drive around in the morning, can't we, and see the mist on the fields, perhaps more in autumn and winter time, and you go back a bit later and it's gone. The sun has come out, hopefully, and it's burnt that mist away and that mist has disappeared. And it's just gone. And that's how our lives are. They are held within the sovereignty of God. 
held within the love and the passion of God that he has for us for all eternity in Jesus. But it's a mist. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. It's not something that we can control. So James offers us a solution. And it's don't see your life as something that you own. Don't see your future as something to boast about because it's not yet happened. But rather submit yourself to God. Trust his future. Trust his love. Trust his hand on your life that he will be with you all the time. And so he says, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. That's what you say. That's the heart attitude to have. I can remember as a a child being in church, and we used to have this particular man who gave the notices sometimes, and he would always say things like this. Tuesday night, 7.30, prayer meeting, God willing. Wednesday night, church meeting, 8 o'clock, DV, which apparently stands for Dio Valente, which is God willing in Latin. Don't know why he chose to speak Latin at that point. Um, Thursday night, kids club, 8 o'clock, well, it wouldn't be 8 o'clock, 6 o'clock, God willing. And everything had this God willing afterwards. I can see some of you nodding. You've been in churches where that used to happen. And it was as if everything had to be, had this little tag online, just to make sure that we weren't slipping out of what James 4 is talking about. I don't think that's actually what James has in mind. I don't think we should be saying, you know, I'm I'm going to order a takeaway and it'll arrive in half an hour, God willing. (laughs) I don't think that's quite what, what James is talking about. But it's rather the heart attitude of saying our lives are held within God. We don't hold it, but God does. And if we want to boast about anything, don't boast about what we plan to do for the future, but boast in God's future for us. Boast in the things that we know. Boast in the cross and resurrection. Boast that we know God. Boast that he knows us. Boast that we are chosen. All these things that Paul will talk about and that the Bible will mention. I love these words from Jeremiah because this takes boasting back into the Old Testament as well. But let them who boasts boast in this, that they understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, who exercises loving devotion, justice and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Today, do you have confidence that your life is held in Christ? Is that something that causes you a great sense of security, that whatever happens, that actually we are held and loved by him? Will we give up our right to be right, if you like, and trust in the Lord and boast in the things that he has done, not in our own understanding, but in his name, in his acts, and in his future? Let me pray for us. I'm going to read those words out again. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. Lord, we thank you that you do have plans for us. You have eternal plans for us. And those plans are good. Those plans are amazing. And those plans are all centered around Jesus. And we just pray that perhaps if either of these issues that we've highlighted this morning, if those are real struggles for us at the moment, Lord, that you will help us to put them down. You'll help us to focus our eyes and our thoughts once again, once again on you. And Lord, that we would see your will and purposes in our lives and our hearts. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.